It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And of course, you could be listening on the Radio Player Canada app if you download the app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM. You could be listening on your device of choice anywhere across the country, any time of day. And uh, just to mention, uh, if you happen to miss one of our our broadcasts, one of our interviews, and you uh, have heard about it or you want to mention it to someone because you think someone else would enjoy it, please let them know. They can check out our website at elmntfm.ca. It's also on SoundCloud. We mount, uh, put them on our, our webpage, and uh, you, they are available for you to listen to anytime you want. After a couple of days, it gets a couple of days to uh, uh, put up there. But I'd like to now welcome my first guest to the show, Chanupa Hanska Luger. He is uh, here to talk about an installation at the Gardner Museum, and it's a Canadian debut of his Everyone uh, and Kelly Spritzer Sisters uh, picture. It has to do with missing and murdered Indigenous women. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, tell me about how you got involved with this project, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. This project began as uh, an exhibition that I did in Colorado Springs, um, and uh, I was trying to figure out a way to curate an exhibition. Um, most uh, institutions don't necessarily want artists to curate. Um, mm. They have curators, so they pay for all of that sure. um, already. <laughs> anyway, uh, I found a loophole in that. And the loophole was if I collaborated with everybody who um, I wanted in this exhibition, then I could force the hand of the institution. Ah. So it started a whole project around the notion of a bead. Um, the exhibition was called Lazy Stitch. And uh, everyone is the piece that developed um, working in collaboration and solidarity with uh, Kaylee Spitzer. Yeah, interesting approach that you took with that. Uh, you know, quite interesting that it, it did a couple of things for you, allowed you to curate, mm -hmm. uh, but also create this wonderful beadwork uh, based on, on Carrie's work, as you mentioned, um, that went on to, uh, to get many people involved. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was really interested in how... Um, so. Uh, Kaylee's photograph um, sister is uh, was created um, in relationship to the missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, Kaylee is from Northwest Territories uh, here in Canada. I am from um, Fort Berthold in uh, in North Dakota. I was born on the Standing Rock Reservation there, mm. um, and I recognize that the the um, the trauma and the effect of of missing and murdered Indigenous women, the um, perpetuation of uh, matricide. Uh, across the continent is consistent, but there was a data set here. And so every one is an effort to try to humanize that data. Mm. So um, rather than looking at 4,000 as a single number, you can see it at scale. So each bead um, represents one of those numbers, uh, thus the title every one. Yeah. And um, in, the, in, the, in the process of creating this work, um, I realized that the most beautiful this art could ever be is in the production of it mm. and the production of, of a bead. And so I made a, um, I made a video that was placed on social media sites and I used basically my privilege as an artist and the um, um, pull that I can get kind mm -hmm. of through these media outlets and stuff. Um, to get people to participate and make a bead. Um, because what I experienced in the process was that um, we all have somebody in relationship mm. to this issue that mm. we know, and it's a, it's a way to make sure that they are counted in that. And so there was a, there was a prayer-like aspect to this. Um, um, every time I made a bead, I would sit there and I would say, this is already too many, this is enough, this mm. has to stop. Mm. Um, and uh, three days in, to the project for myself, I realized that that was the that was the art. You mm. know, the object that we see at the gardener is a byproduct of that. It's sure. a it's an effort to make this kind of more public. But um, the most beautiful it was, I think, happened at those little work stations in people's kitchens. You know, as they produced beads. Sure. And, yeah, kind of had the cathartic experience of, of, of making their numbers count. Yeah, of course, and uh, directly linked them to the project. It, mm -hmm. It's a great idea. Before we go any further, you mentioned you're from uh, New Mexico and based there. Uh, you're an a multidisciplinary artist. 
you were raised, as you mentioned, the Stanley Ro- Standing Rock Reservation, North, North Dakota, but you have an interesting background. Mm. Uh, do you care to just elaborate? And I think both you and Carrie both share a sort of interesting backgrounds. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose. I'm not quite certain what you mean by an interesting well, background. Well, your heritage. Oh, you have yeah. a very mixed heritage. Totally, it? totally. I am I am Mandan Hidatsa Arikara. That's where I'm enrolled at, which is at Fort Berthold. It's Upper Missouri River. Mm. Um, that's my mom's side, so I'm Awche, Dripping Earth Clan from there. Uh, my father, uh, or my mother was uh, uh, also Norwegian, so mm. my grandmother uh, was Norwegian and adopted into the community uh, <laughs> years ago, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then on my father's side, I'm Lakota and um, Germanic. So right. there's like a German-Austrian. My grandfather was was uh, German-Austrian. So basically everybody who made it into North Dakota mm. is also in my blood. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> and Carrie also has an interesting heritage mix. Kaylee, yeah, yeah. Kaylee, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yes, she does. Um, and I think, I, I don't know, as... The reason why I wanted to do the whole exhibition, Lazy Stitch, in the first place is, is um, in the U.S., whenever you get access to an institution to um, uh, do artwork as a Native person, oftentimes you're um, relocated to a Native exhibition. Mm. And so there's no opportunity to talk about intersection and all mm. of these collisions of, of uh, points of view mm. and uh, experiences. Um, so... Doing that exhibition allowed me to create these intersections. Um, uh, Kaylee is a um, was one one of those many facets for this for this uh, project, mm-hmm. but it allowed me to work with people of different um, sexual orientation, different yep. age, different um, uh, race, um, and really kind of like emphasize this notion of uh, uh, like I said, it was based on beads. Mm-hmm. So the pattern becomes beautiful because the variety of the bead, you mm-hmm. know. And so we kind of played around with those ideas and created intersections with that. And as a um, as a person of mixed heritage, uh, I, I'm I'm also that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it was really important to um, to uh, create an opportunity for us to call each other in rather than call each other out. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a part of it. Now, uh, the the other thing we were talking about beads, but uh, we should also, I guess, clarify for people that uh, that aren't able to see see it. Uh, th- they may be thinking of very tiny beads, but in fact, they're not tiny beads. No, no. This piece weighs uh, a, a metric ton, so oh. um, it is uh, what about fifteen feet wide, um, twelve feet tall. Uh, it's sixty four strands of beads um, with sixty four beads on each strand. Mm. And each bead is roughly about, um, I don't know, I'm American, so roughly two inches, two to three inches. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, the scale of that is is large, and mm. it gets um, it, it gets heavy in mm. that in mm-hmm. that relationship. Um, I think th- the physical weight of it is one thing. As um, as somebody who has to steward this work, I keep running into really interesting things in relationship to it. Um, we embedded queer and trans communities within the creation of this work mm-hmm. uh, because they have also suffered the same um, brutality but haven't been part of those mm. tolls and mm-hmm. those polls numbers um, mm-hmm. and that data. And so we wanted to represent that. So the total number of beads that are actually strung together are 4,096. Um, some of the things that was really interesting about doing this project is the power of data. Like I, I see the effect of this issue um, based in dehumanization. You know, um, this is what justifies and creates this this uh, this effect. And I understand the power of data to create uh, safeguards and and uh, policies. You know, to help protect people. Mm. But in the process of turning them into data, you dehumanize them. So how can dehumanization be the the uh, resolution to dehumanization? Mm. So this is an effort to try to like rehumanize that and 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 make that effort clear. Um, stewarding this work, though, the other weight of it is the the psychological and emotional weight of this sure. piece. Um, it's really difficult for me to um, exhibit it and move it and carry it to different places and watch these institutions with white cotton gloves, art handlers, um, take care of this piece, pull it out of its crate, place it on packing blankets before it goes up, how careful I am with it. Um, it breaks my heart because we are more careful with the object, mm. these individual mm. beads, than the bodies they represent. Yeah, And um, and that's heavy, you know, sure that's is. heavier than sure that ton. Um, and to repeat that process over and over is... I'm, I'm glad you shared that because only you 
uh, as as the person uh, being in in contact with that. And, and as you say, you were you were saying a bit of a prayer every time you made one of these beads, mm-hmm. and, and 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 what it represents. So uh, for you to see that and how it is is handled, how it is cared for, and to uh, to e- express what you just did about how it is cared for more than the bodies and the people it represents it, it's a good pr- great great point i thank you for, yeah, for sharing that definitely um now the other thing is that as you say this is the people you put it out on social media people start to make uh, g- you gave instructions on how to make the beads mm-hmm. uh people then forward them forwarded them to you where Absolutely. did you get beads coming in from yeah from all over the place mm. uh u.s canada mm. um basically as far as my social media could reach um, and I, I work, I have a background in ceramics. So a lot of the people who were, um, uh, participating in this also are mm. clay people. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the most part, this, the majority of these beads came in, in small batches of like 20, 20 beads, you know, mm. and, uh, photographs came along with them of yeah. people working on the project. Um, one of the, I guess. One of the things that I didn't expect to receive that came in in a lot of these boxes were um, letters, letters that weren't addressed to me, but letters that were just like, look, we made we made 33 beads. One of them's my sister. One Uh of them's my auntie. One of them's my mom, you know. And so you start to be able to um, um, use the creation of this as also um, something cathartic for the people who oh, yeah. these numbers represent. But, and a lot of that came in from the U S and we don't have that data set. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but also, you know, I'm, I'm an indigenous person and I barely <laughs> acknowledge the border, you know? So like that yeah. relationship to, um, uh, how far this goes, I, I see a direct correlation by looking at the data between um, this and extractive industries. And there seems to be a direct correlation with that, globally Mm -hmm. um you know as as indigenous populations uh inhabit um more of the you know air quote finger quote uh wild places in in the world um as people go to extract from those regions um our populations ends up being the front line of of that defense and um and then even just proximity so economic pressures and all of these sorts of things basically puts us in harm way mm-hmm. um for an industry that is already taking from yeah. from that place i think it moves it moves um it moves them one step closer to to furthering that that taking you know yep. so and i see that globally um uh so it's it's heavy i'm i'm i was happy to work with the data set from here i'm really interested in how um once again, creating intersections and creating um, an opportunity for us to see each other and um, help protect one another. You know, you, you raised a couple of interesting points there. And I, I would like to come back to them. One about the letters and two about intersections. But before we do that, I just want to mention everyone that you're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And uh, my guest here on Element FM is uh, Chinupa Hanska Luger, and he is a multidisciplinary artist. We're talking about uh, the installation of Everyone. It is based on, uh, uh, actually, it's a, a unique uh, way that uh, I carry one about doing this this picture yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's uh, so collaborating with uh, with Kaylee on this project. Kaylee, uh, Kaylee produced um, an image. She. Uh, uh, Kaylee does tintype photography. That's it, yeah. And so tintype photography also has like a, um, you know, I, I think the work that Kaylee's doing is also, um, it's important to represent ourselves rather than be represented. And I think the effect of the camera on us as far as um, relocating us to a historical context um, and and perpetuating us within those historical contexts, it's important that we as, as indigenous people um, take on that and, rep, you know, give, give ourselves at least an honest representation of who we are. So Kaylee's photograph um, um, was an effort to, to do that, you mm. know, and, and I think uh, her process and projects um, are based around that, um, creating representations uh, of us, even using tintype, like an old style of, of photography, um, to reinforce, like, um, our, our existence, our present existence, our future existence, and, and what mm. we've accomplished mm. and how we contribute rather mm. than just still being here. You right, know? right. And I think it's important that it's um, stuck in that um, uh, tintype form 
Um, so I was really interested in uh, creating a creating a bead project that actually, you know, I I have a hard time seeing the photograph um, when I when I do this because I've been so engaged with every single one of the beads. Um, they came to me mostly unfired. I had to put them mm. in the kiln, fire mm. them, um, 4,000 plus beads. Right. And, um, and I, I developed an intimate relationship with the, with everyone, mm. you know, thus the title. It was, mm-hmm. was my relationship to it. Um, so I figured there was a way to use like pixelation. Um, I've seen portraiture in beads and I just wanted to do it at a much larger scale so that as you enter and experience the piece, the closer you are to it, the less visible the the portrait is. Mm. Um, but from a distance, you have the opportunity to right. see it in yep. in um, totality. Yes. You know? yes. And and have an image represented on that, um, an indigenous female image on top right. of that. Um, and so that was the kind of intersection where uh, Kaylee's work and my work kind of stand in solidarity with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, um, the beads, when they were sent to you, I, I, and I, I, I'm guessing that you put the images on on each of the beads to, you, you, to create the, the the image yeah it's a it's a six part grayscale basically okay. yeah. and so um i had a grid of 4000 and i figured out how to create the image using 4000 pixels mm. basically um and uh uh used a program to break down what shade i need and in, mm. in what location there was a lot of math involved that, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of math involved and because um, people from across the continent produce these beads, none of them are equal. So none of my pixels are the same size. Um, I gave like a, a really basic and clear kind of scale, but you know the hand is a is mm. a is a incredibly articulated tool, and right, it's right. difficult for consistency, especially working with hundreds of people. Yeah, um, and so. Uh, I had to measure in between, and I didn't do it all myself. That was the other thing that's really important about this. No part of this project, I feel like, is um, uh, singularly mine. Mm. Um, I had the idea. Mm. But um, in order to produce it, what I was interested in is um, how do you amplify, how do you take art out of a, out of the noun and share the verb of art? You mm. know, mm. art, art is, is a verb, has been a verb, will continue to be a verb. Art mm. is this practice, right? Mm. But um, it's been it's been relocated, you know. It's been objectified. It's been turned into a commodity, mm. um, and so the noun of it is what is celebrated. You know, yeah. the art isn't the object that's sitting over at the gardener. The art is the participation of all of these people right. coming together to produce right. a project. Sure. Um, so they're represented. Their names, if they wanted to be listed, are represented in the creation of right. it. Um, uh, every time it's exhibited, um, there is a donation that the the institutions nice. make. Um, so it's just constantly paying this this whole project forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had groups in or in New Mexico where I uh, fired everything and put it together at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Um, I worked with Red Shawl Society; they helped me do some of the work. Um, uh, there was a group called Indigenous Goddess Gang that came down, helped me measure in between each bead so that I can start putting the grid together. And then each bead is stained using um, uh, uh, India ink. Mm. And um, so it's like a, what do you call that, a uh, uh, light sensitive or light fast um, right. uh, ink. And I just created a, a six-part grayscale and dipped each bead until it uh, matched the color I needed and wow. gritted it all out. And every time I exhibit it, I have to adjust it, it <laughs> just so, you know. So, um, yeah, it's there was a whole process. <laughs> yeah, and, there, and it continues to be a process. Um, that's that's wonderful, and, and I really appreciate the fact of how you brought this all together with these 4,000 beads and all these people and the letters. I'm, I was going to ask oh, you yeah. about the letters because I was going, I expected if people were sending these in, you probably got more than just the, the bead. Yeah. You, got, you probably got some letters from people. So it was, yeah. it, it almost sounds like that, uh, you know, as you say, the, the people's names could be mentioned, but these stories that came with them, that must have been another... That's totally. another part of this whole exhibit. Yeah, well, and they weren't written to me. They yeah. were just written yeah. out into the world. So what I ended up doing was with those letters, um, there is a ceramic uh, egg that travels with this. Mm. Um, and inside of that egg without access, um, mm. because it seems it seemed too personal, Sure. Um, I placed all of those letters. So they're, nice. they're exhibited in a, in, a, in a potential safe place. You that's, know? that's great. Yeah. Um, there was there was also a lot of uh, beads that broke along the way oh, yeah. um, through transit mm. through uh, the firing process. 
Um, and I thought it was important that they were also represented mm. and um, presenting some of these beads fractured and yep. the effect of that is mm. also a part of the of sure. the installation. Sure. So there's um, piles of beads that fall underneath it and lay on the on the ground um, for those stories that didn't get caught, yeah. you know, yeah. um, those communities that were shattered by it. Uh, Chinupa, how how has this been going over? What kind of results, what kind of things are you hearing back? Um, I hear back really good things. Because it was so collaborative, every time I exhibit this, I find somebody who contributed, which mm. is amazing. Mm. And um, for me, I think that's really interesting because it's a way to um, – it was a way to – reinforce this idea that you can share art as a as a verb rather than a noun because mm. those people who participated in the project when they see this work they own it without having to possess it <laughs> you know and that's contrary to the whole machine that mm. that uh, mm. I work in you know mm. it's like you can own this without having it you know um, and I really like to see those responses from people mm. um, and they search they search the grid they try to find their bead in, in relationship to it or some of the ones they worked on right um, uh, and it's just a different way to experience art rather than it being an object, you know, right. it's like something right. you participated in. Um, beyond that, I know that it has been used as an image, um, uh, to create traction in the United States to start the, pr uh, process of, of gathering data and there are efforts underway right now, um, uh, to do that. So I think that the, uh, the overall outcome, um, is positive. It's, I'm so close to it. All I can see is the beads, you know. Yeah. So, I, yeah. you know, the f further away I get from that and I can relax my gaze, I'm sure that there is a right. much larger image yeah. that will unfold. Um, I'm so close to it. It's really hard to see. It, it, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to be careful with the words I use here. It's a wonderful project I in many ways, but it's a, it's a, a tragic uh, project, project mm -hmm. because of, of the subject matter and the reason why it is being brought together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there was something in the firing of those beads that uh, taught me something. Mm. Um, and the care, like uh, that I mentioned before, that mm. takes place with them um, as each bead representing a body. Um, I do these projects. I have another project up right now that's called Something to Hold On To, and it's looking at data um, of uh, uh, people moving across borders, migrating across borders, and um, and the data sets that I'm working with are bodies found um, making that effort, seeking asylum or seeking to better their lives mm -hmm. in one way or another. Um, and uh, that data set is huge. I'm looking at it specifically on the U.S.-Mexico border where this project will be taking place. Mm -hmm. um, I'm working closely with Tohono O'odham Nation and um, and then also, you know, much larger country. But I'm also looking at a, an international data set and we're looking at like 25,000 uh, bodies in 2017 found yeah. seeking wow. asylum and they're grossly underestimated, you know. Um, so once again, these sorts of projects, I'm not going to fire those beads. Mm. I'm going to allow those mm. beads to be unfired clay um, because of what I learned from doing this one. Um, there's something in creating that image, creating that effort to participate, but not having an object afterwards. We will string this. Um, this will be one continuous line rather than a portrait. It's just going to be one continuous line of beads. Um, uh, and they're literally, you just squeeze a ball of clay in your hand and mm. the, the um, negative space that your hand yeah. makes is the bead. Yeah. Um, and uh, that will be strung across the U.S.-Mexico border and left to disintegrate just to remind people that there has never been a border that has survived. You know, and these geopolitical borders are arbitrary, especially to indigenous people mm. who've been on that land for mm -hmm. so long mm -hmm. in, you know, in time immemorial and their, their borders aren't subject necessarily to these geopolitical changes. So that's kind of some, the next the next effort, um, the next project that I'm working on with, with this concept. Right, um, yeah. right. Uh, look forward to, to hearing more about that. <clears throat> now we're, we're quickly running out of time, unfortunately, but I'm just wondering, is there anything about the project that we haven't touched on? Of course, uh, people can get to see this up until January 12th, and that is at the Gardner Museum. And if people want to find out more, they can go to online at thegardnermuseum.com to learn more about that mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. and find out uh, dates and times and things like that for, for viewing. Yeah. Uh, but is there anything else about this we haven't touched on that you think is important to mention? Um, I don't know. I think it's important. One thing that I'm really interested in is having it here in, in Canada, mm. spe specifically sure. because this is uh, where the data set came from. Yep. Um, so I'm really... Um, 
because I grew up in North Dakota, I have culturally closer ties to the communities here than I do to the communities in New Mexico where I live today, um, just because our cultures are so vast and varied. And, mm -hmm. and um, uh, I was really happy to bring this piece up here. And I was I'm, I'm also interested in traveling it here um, mm -hmm. to to other locations. Um, ideally, this is where it lives. I don't sure. I don't have that uh, in place yet. Uh, and until then, I move it. I move it throughout spaces. So uh, what have you got lined up for traveling at, at this point in time to other other uh, cities or museums in Canada? Anything? Um, I don't have anything locked down in Canada yet. Right. Um, it's it's traveling to uh, uh, the Hood Museum in Dartmouth, um, a university in, right. in Vermont, I think. Mm. I can't okay. remember. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then it goes to the Plains Art Museum in North Dakota, so I get to bring the project back home to where I'm from. And then uh, it goes to the Denver Art Museum for an exhibition that I'm working on, and um, that exhibition may travel. So it's kind of moving around through all of that, but I'm relatively young. Clay is going to live a lot longer than me, so it'll come around. <laughs> That's great. Uh, it's been a real pleasure having you in today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. And, and Thank you. Uh, you know, again, this is a, uh, it, it's a great project for a tragic situation that, as you say, uh, it's, it's taken it uh, out of your hands to some degree and mm -hmm. put it in the hands of people so they can contribute. And I can't think of a better way for, especially on a topic like this, that that uh, can allow it to uh, allow people to get involved and be part of it as it, as it moves across and creates something yeah and, and and brings it to everyone right and I exactly and I think it's important that there is um, um, participation in that because there's no there's no one one resolution for it you know mm. um, so uh, this by design I, I think it it reinforces this idea of complexity and contradiction and and um, all of those dynamics are challenged uh, once again, uh, my guest today has been uh, Janupa Hanuska. Hanska, thank you. And uh, Luger, he has this exhibit on at the Gardner Museum, uh, and it is on until January 12th of two 2020. It is called Everyone, and it is in conjunction with Kaylee Spritzer and uh, an image that she created. Uh, and uh, you can check that out and you can go online to find out more at gardnermuseum.com if you would like to see this. And please, uh, by all means, uh, not only check it out, but ask to have it brought to uh, your community or museum near you. This is a definitely uh, a piece that everyone is involved with and has been involved with. And uh, as uh, Chinupa mentioned, everyone has been touched by. So please uh, reach out and uh not only give it a, a, a look and, and go to see it, but also uh, donate to it and, uh, and help it spread the, the, the way uh, that it can help bring awareness to the missing and murdered Indigenous women. Chinupa, Chimigwech for coming in today. Thank you. It's been our pleasure. Please don't go away. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth right after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show, She's on the line, and she is Dr. Gail Kranzberg, and she is uh, McMaster University at the Faculty of Engineering. She's here to talk to us about uh, something that we've heard about quite recently, and we're hearing more and more about, and that is the uh, uh, plastics. Uh, we've heard about them in the oceans. We've heard about microplastics and how they're getting into things. You know, we've heard a lot about plastics in terms of pollution and in terms of uh, aqua life and and uh, fish and uh, things in 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 ingesting plastics and those kind of things, but I guess we're we're starting to come into a new awareness about uh, plastics, not only in terms of the the amount of plastics being dumped into our our rivers, our lakes, our oceans, etc., but the damage that uh, is being done at the microscopic level. So, uh, Dr. Gail, Gail Kratzenberg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And uh, you are doing some studies, and you've done some studies on plastics, and now in the Great Lakes, I understand. Yes, yeah, so what I did was review the work of researchers around uh, the Great Lakes region who have been out there searching for and, and un unfortunately finding large volumes of plastics in the Great Lakes at concentrations that parallel what we see in the oceans. And everybody 
knows about the ocean gyres and we see these horrible photographs of turtles and whales and all sorts of animals either being strangled or ingesting these things. Well, it's happening right here, right in our backyard in the Great Lakes region. Mm. Okay, so, so you started to look at the work and, and what you, in the Great Lakes, what did you find? Well, um, there's a few different ways that the plastics get into the Great Lakes, and we find them in big, chunky pieces like um, plastic water bottles, for example, or smaller pieces like cigarette butts and food wrappers, or very, or, and, and plastic bags in particular. And then we also see them in bro- broken-down microplastics. This is when the bacteria eat at the plastics. They break it down into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces, and that becomes the food for organisms that would normally eat plankton, like floating algae or floating insects, floating uh, animals. Well, they think these plastics are food, and they start eating them and basically are starving to death. And then a bigger fish comes along and eats the smaller fish and fills its gut with a very poorly nourished piece of food, and it just goes up the food chain that way. But there are many different ways that they get into the Great Lakes. Um, when we wash our clothes, the, some of the fibers come off our clothes and they go down into the sewage treatment systems and most treatment plants can't capture them and they go back out in the lakes. When we go shopping and we decide we want one apple and for reasons that I can't understand, we put the apple in a plastic bag to take it home and we put the apple in our fridge and we put the plastic bag, rightfully so, in the blue bin but in our blue bins, there's all sorts of things that are contaminating the recycling stream. So most of what we put in the blue bin goes into a landfill. And from there, it blows around and goes onto the hard surfaces, into our rivers, streams, lakes, and back into the Great Lakes. Well, yikes. <laughs> I don't know what else to say to that. Holy smokes. Uh, this vicious cycle that we have created, of course, and it's our own creation man-made plastics is uh, is the is the culprit and you uh, just enlightened me to a whole new level of things in terms of you know I never thought about when you said when you said our clothing um, and of course that's the man-made fibers that we're talking about um, I'm not I'm assuming yeah. we're not talking about cotton no no we're man-made fibers yeah yeah and uh, there again uh, yeah so now you know it is surprising to me to hear when you say bacteria is eating at this and breaking it down, thinking it's something to eat. Uh, that that surprises me right there. I didn't think that the bacteria would be able to even break this stuff down, but that's surprising in itself. Well, particularly because some manufacturers of plastics understand that it should degrade in the yeah. ecosystem. Right. So, so you might put some cornstarch in with plastic so that it breaks down into particles because... Mm. Bacteria will eat the cornstarch, right. but then the particles that remain are plastic. They're, those particles that are still there can't be used by any organisms. They're synthetic, so mm. they, can't, they can't be taken up as, as anything like a food particle. Okay, and so do we have any numbers in terms of, of how much we are dumping or how much this is affecting the Great Lakes? So we're dumping about... 10,000 tons of plastic waste every year into the Great Lakes. The, in the long term, what is this going to do to the fish and to the wildlife? Well, we don't know. We've only just started discovering the plastics in the Great Lakes in the last five to ten years. Would it, is it possible that we could actually get, destroy some of the more sensitive fish and wildlife that would be eating polluted foods because not only are they malnourished, but plastics absorb some substances in the environment that are toxic, like PCBs, for example, mm-hmm. hydrocarbons. And so they're not only ingesting stuff that's not nutritious, they're also ingesting contaminants at high concentrations. If this persists, if it grows, the potential is to damage fish and wildlife to the extent where some of our sport fish, may, for example, may collapse because the food chain is collapsing. We, I don't want to be alarmist because we really don't know. But what we do know is they have no business being there. Um, having plastic in your gut, we actually have it in our drinking water as well. We know it's not supposed to be in our bodies, so precautions should tell us. Before somebody says to you, yeah, well, you can't prove it's not harming humans, <laughs> well, plastic should not be in our bellies. We, we should not be eating plastics. It's just wrong. 
So the precautionary thing says find solutions. There are filters that you could put at the end of your dish wa- uh, washing machine. Excuse me. They're not widely available yet on the marketplace, but they could be. There are some sewage treatment plants that have high-efficiency filtration at the end of the plant. They're capturing the stuff. So engineering can solve that. But then when I go to the store today and I, I need a bunch of bananas, I need to remind myself I don't need a bag for that. Mm. You know, you go to the grocery store, everybody's got cloth bags and reusable pl- bags. Use those so you don't have this waste. We think it's being recycled by putting it in the blue bin so we don't think too badly about doing it, but it's not getting recycled. So much of our blue bin ends up in landfill sites. We need to not just think the solution is putting it into a recycling bin. The solution is refusing to use it in the first place. Now, to that end, uh, I believe there are some uh, some grocery chains that are introducing that. Uh, I believe it's, is it next uh, in 2020 that they're going to ban the use of single-use plastics? Well, it, de- it depends on which order of government you're speaking of. I know that just before the election, the federal government was looking exactly at doing that, but they were looking at straws, single-use plastic bags, single-use cutlery, those kinds of things. Those are not the only... No. plastics on the marketplace, even, even you know, water bottles. Were they thinking about that? I'm not clear on that. The thing is, that's happening now, which is, which is positive, is that some grocery chains are either charging for it or not using it. They just give you a paper option and that's it. And guess what? You also have to pay for that paper option. So it behooves all of us to save money and bring our own bags. But that's a piecemeal approach. It's, it's laudable. I really applaud the, the forward-thinking businesses that are doing this. But we really need a much more across-the-board, consistent policy. The province can tell municipalities by date X, by date certain, you will no longer use single-use plastics in your grocery stores. You will no longer use shopping bags that are made out of plastic. Those will be made out of paper. And, and they could incentivize that or disincentivize people from, from um, not bringing their own. The funding formula is not what's as important. What's, as, what's important is that at a provincial level, all provinces mandate that municipalities no longer use these bags um, and single-use plastics. Um, and, and perhaps the role of the federal government, it goes beyond that. What are the, what's the research going into? Look, plastic is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Plastic is light. It's durable. It has its place in the market. It's way cheaper to move beverages around in plastic than in glass. That save on, saves on greenhouse gases. But it's the plastic recycling that's a failure mm. and the nature of the plastic that could be done maybe biologically based polymers that has and there's research on that and that's uh, there's a really big federal role for research and development and you know if if the federal government wanted to invest in that i think that would be a fantastic worthy investment for the long term and do you see any kind of interest in this uh, you know moving in that direction oh yes there is there are um, there's a I'm not going to try and remember all the researchers' names, but there's a laboratory in Halifax that look, that's looking at fish oil, which is a waste product from the fisheries. Could we take fish oil and, and give it properties that are plasticized? Um, and no, it doesn't have a smell. <laughs> but then again, um, maybe some of the vegetarians around the world would not like to see that their plastic is made from dead fish. Okay, fine enough. But what about researchers in other parts of Canada who are looking at waste from, uh, from the um, wood industry. So pulp and paper mills mm-hmm. have, a bu- have a lot of fibrous waste at the end of the day, pellets, for example, that could be turned into a plastic replacement that when it's broken down and eaten by microbes, it turns into food. I think that's the way of the future. And I don't think... If, I, if I'm not mistaken, I've, I've seen those kind of uh, plates and uh, cutlery being served at a number of events that I've gone to that are, that are wood-based. Uh, bamboo is, is another option, is it not? Absolutely, it is. I don't know that they've, uh, they've successfully turned bamboo into a plastic-type wrapper mm. of sorts or a bag, but bamboo is a fantastic substitute for so many uses because it's a very, very rapidly growing plant. Mm. It doesn't use fertilizers, it doesn't use pesticides, it's clean, it's made into fabrics that wouldn't cause microplastics in, in bamboo fabrics, bamboo plates, bamboo cutlery. It's a fantastic alternative. Yeah. 
Um, I think I interrupted you there just before uh, you 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 uh, you were about to say something, but I'm not sure if you remember what that was. But I'll jump on to another point. I- is there a difference? Do you know in terms of how pras- plastic breaks down uh, or affects the difference between a salt water body or a freshwater body? I actually do not. What I do know is that it almost doesn't matter because plastic breaks down in the orders of hundreds and hundreds of years. So if salt water accelerates that or decelerates that, it would be marginal because we're talking about things that will be in the environment for centuries. Right. Okay. Now, I believe it's uh, Sobeys that might be uh, banning the, the single-use plastic bags or in the new year. Uh, as you say, it's a, a piecemeal sort of approach, but it's a, a good start and uh, one way of helping us to eliminate some of those plastic bags that are getting into the landfill, as you have uh, so, so rightly pointed out. Um, what are, you, what are your, your concerns? What, from, the, from the data you've collected, from the information that you have collected so far, looking at the Great Lakes, what is your immediate concern? I have a few concerns. One is that this is going to get worse before it gets wet, better. Mm. That's because we haven't banned these things yet. I go to, I go to my local um, coffee shop. I ask for a glass of water, and they give me a straw in it. I don't need mm. a straw in mm. my glass of water. They don't ask me. They don't offer. They just automatically do it. Mm. The mentality is not there. So right. one thing that is going to happen in the Great Lakes region is as climate change creates unlivable conditions around the world, water-scarce areas, or states that have been completely buried under, water, under the ocean, people are going to look for a place to move. And they're going to come to the Great Lakes region because it's a fantastic place to live. It's full, lots of water, wonderful climate. We'll have more people continuing this practice, and it will get worse before it gets better. That's what scares me right now, unless we put a, a regulatory framework in place. I'm all for the Sobeys of the world doing the right things. Absolutely I am for the consumer being educated and aware and, and refusing to take the plastics. That's a great step. But I think this is one situation where community of practice is simply not enough. We really do need a regulated um, structure on how the industry performs, how the producer of plastics are responsible for recouping them, reusing them, repurposing them, um, and that it's not just left to an informed consumer's decision or informed corporate's decision, but that it gets implemented and soon. Not five years from now, but very soon. Right. I'd just like to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Dr. Gail Kranzberg, and she is with the Faculty of Engineering at McMaster University in Hamilton. She's on the line joining us, and we're talking about uh, trying to restrict uh, plastic bags and trying to get use, get rid of, of plastics, I guess, uh, altogether, if, if at all possible, uh, very soon because of the damage that they are doing to not only the environment, but to now, as we find out, our, our food chain. We are eating things that are consuming microplastics that are being broken down in the Great Lakes and in the oceans. And uh, it's going to become an issue. Uh, uh, Dr. Gale uh, just pointed out about the idea that the Great Lakes is a, is a wonderful place to live and more and more people are going to be moving in here. And unless we start to change the mindset and start to implement some of these changes around plastic, the problem will not only continue, it will increase. Um, so to that end, uh, Dr. Yael Kranzberg, what, uh, what are you doing to uh, approach provinces and uh, trying to get people to, to get on side with this? Well, part of it is dialogue with government. Part of, part of the reason, so I, I wrote a review article on, on the plastic pollution in the Great Lakes and wanted exactly what's happening right now, wanted the media to start talking about it. Mm. And people starting writing letters to the editor. People have been contacting me and my colleagues who work in this field, quite concerned about the issue. We want this to get into the government's agenda. It is on the federal government's agenda. We are delighted about that. We need to get it onto the provincial side's agenda. And speaking about it publicly, informing your listeners, informing the people who listen, who watch TV, read media, look at blogs, that this is going on, this is not acceptable, and we need change now. That's the message we need to get out to our political leaders. 
Uh, my uh, intention, so just just yesterday, I was talking to some of the counselors with the city of Mississauga, asking what their plan was, and they are looking at banning plastics in the city of Mississauga. That's great. City by city is great. So you can talk to your local politicians to get it done in your community and hope that they reach out to the province as a unified voice, as the Great Lakes mayors, and speak to the governments of Canada, the United States, the states, the provinces, and demand that some action be taken so the people that they are there to protect are absolutely protected. Mm. And, um, you know, a couple of things that, that come back to me as you're, you're talking about, about this is that uh, I'm wondering about maybe not pushback, but uh, reasons people find to want to delay this. Well, we, we are so accustomed to, to, the, to the convenience of plastics in mm. society. We've been doing it for decades and decades, right? Mm. So to, exa- to expect people to understand new ways of doing things within two, three, four months is perhaps not reasonable. Um, we need the technology to be developed so when you go get your blueberries in a clamshell, that clamshell doesn't become plastic waste that degrades into the Great Lakes. Mm. We need new containers. Maybe we, maybe we go back to uh, paper fibers for that mm. type, of, type of thing. But we need the technology to advance. The other thing that is advancing is, is for the people who are really conscious about this, conscientious about this, is instead of wrapping your food bowl that is half full with last night's dinner, you wrap it in plastic wrap, mm. there, are, there is fabric now that is molded in some cases with beeswax, for example, mm. that are reusable hun- uh, at least a hundred times. You can mold them around anything, and you can wash them, and they're reused, and, and they're clean. We all know honey is the one food that never, never goes bad. It's yeah. got antibacterial, antimicrobial properties. So there are options out there. They're not that easy to find if you don't know where to look. Mm. So we need them to be, we need, I would love to go into the grocery store where you go and there's like the aluminum foil and the, and the parchment paper and the plastic wrap. At that same station, there should be paper alternatives, beeswax alternatives, mesh bag alternatives so that you can buy them and use them for years and years without ever having to throw out a piece of plastic. Great, great ideas there. Fabric. I, I love the idea of the fabric and the beeswax. That's mm-hmm. great. Yeah, um, and you yeah, can even, you can you can even take if you if you have a uh, half of a melon and mm. you want to wrap that up, you can use this for that too. You don't need that in a container. You don't need that in plastic at all. So that and that kind of stuff would be washable, I guess. Oh, it is absolutely. <laughs> I have I have several of them in my own house. And where do you find these things then? How did you? You said it's not that easy to find, which is true, I'm guessing. But how? Where do you search? You just go and so. Recycling Council of Ontario would be a perfect place to go and look. Okay. They're always looking for, re- for, for ways to reduce waste. Okay. That, that sounds like a great place to start for many people, and I hope they will go and, and check that out for sure. Um, you know, the other thing, I guess, that you mentioned earlier, it's not, it's not easy for people to change, especially when we have this convenience. The whole, the whole, our whole society is, is kind of geared towards convenience these days. Um, but... Um, I guess the other thing is that because we don't see the immediate results of the damage, it's hard for us to keep it in mind. Unfortunately, that is true. Um, I'll give you an analogy. Some years ago, I used to, um, I was working on, some of my background is working on contamination of the Great Lakes, particularly what's in the bottom muds or sediment. And I had a politician say to me, do you think anybody's losing sleep over the fact that we have mercury in the sediment that nobody can see? Hmm. And it's true. Of course, that mercury gets into the fish that you no longer can eat, if you think about it that way. So it's about telling the story in a way, yes, you cannot see them, but go down to the lake after a storm, and you'll see the bits of plastic, not necessarily microplastics, they're little beads and things, they're hard to see, but go down after a major storm, and you you will be totally astonished by the colorful bits and pieces of little plastic broken up particles on mm. the shoreline where what you should be seeing is sand and maybe um, some you know organic matter, maybe some algae that washes up, and it's all this blue, green, white, yellow, purple colored pieces of things and cigarette butts and plastic bottles and food wrappers, and it's 
it's absolutely awful thing to see that that's what we're doing to our Great Lakes, where we get our drinking water. The biggest source of fresh water, the biggest body of fresh water on the planet, and that's what we're doing to it. So if you don't, you, it, it, it's not really out of sight, out of mind. It, people need to look at the shoreline as they're going for a walk. And mm. after a storm in particular, you will see the pollution that we're all responsible for. And maybe take heart in the fact that you can stop that tomorrow. You can absolutely stop that. Nicely said, uh, and that's, uh, that's a great point to raise. Now, uh, I just want, would you mind repeating that about the recycling, the site of Ontario? Which one was that called again? Recycling Council. Council, thank you. Yes. Okay, Recycling Council of Ontario. I wanted to make sure people uh, knew that and were were able to get that name. The other thing that that, uh, comes to mind as we talk about this, or when I talk about anyone, uh, talk to anyone about these kind of subjects that are either polluting uh, or have to do with our ecosystem or the planet, is, uh, you know, is that why... Why are we reluctant to err on the side of caution? I think you you mentioned that earlier about precaution, and um, and and just you know taking that as a proactive means. Why do we need to see the results before we you know we have to prove it? We we see it in many other things. You you've already got some of that uh, proof in what you're talking about the bacteria that is eating these plastics and ingesting this stuff. So why do we have to see it go all the way up the food chain to us before we say, oh, it is affecting us? We don't have to see it go to that extent, but as a society, uh, that's the way our policymakers respond. I know this having worked in government for many years. There are many pressures on government to respond to, and they're, they're often responding to the most immediate, visible, pressing threat. Because this is not as visible, mm-hmm. it gets onto the back burner when there are other more visible, pressing health threats. If I had a limited amount of budget, a limited amount of people, limited amount of resources to take action to protect people, I might want to start with opioid bans, vaping bans, before I listen to scientists saying the fish in the lakes are eating plastic that could get into us and hurt us Mm. because we don't see it immediately hurting us. The smart thing is to say, stop it now. It's not a hard thing to stop. But unfortunately, until we get a crisis, it's very hard to push the policymakers to respond. And that's the reality of, of our democracy, in fact. Okay. Uh, Dr. Gail Kranzberg, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, but it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate all the information you had to share with us and, uh, and give people something to think about in terms of just uh, tossing a plastic bottle aside or using those, those one-use uh, time plastic bags uh, please start to think about the environment, start to think about our bodies and what we're, we're ultimately doing by tossing something away. It's going to come back to us. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, and I thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for covering this. It's been my pleasure to speak to you. All right, that is Gail, Dr. Gail Gernsberg. She's with the Faculty of Engineering at McMaster University, and some of her priorities look to contribute to the renewal, protection, and sustainability of natural and cultural heritage features locally, regionally, and globally by advancing the bond between science, engineering, policy, and society. Thank you for listening to the show today. It's been uh, great having uh, Dr. Gail Kranzberg on the show, and we look forward to speaking with you next time on the show. It's been a pleasure. Until then, onigiha.